Today's broadcast of Access Utah originally aired in February of this year. You can still comment on today's program at upraccess at gmail.com or on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Jennifer Jaquette, author of the new book, Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. Robert Sapolsky, reviewing the book, says, In the age of Anthony Weiner and Miley Cyrus, shame seems an antiquated concept, a quaint tool of conformity-based collectivist societies replete with scarlet letters and loss of face. But Jacquette says that in recent years, we as consumers have sought to assuage our guilt about flawed social and environmental practices and policies by, for example, buying organic foods or fair trade products. But unless nearly everyone participates the impact of individual consumer consciousness is ineffective. And so in Is Shame Necessary? she presents a case for public shaming as a nonviolent form of resistance that can challenge corporations and even governments to change policies and behaviors that are detrimental to the environment. Jennifer Jacquette is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at New York University, and she formerly wrote for the Guilty Planet blog at Scientific American. Her website is jenniferjacquette.com. She joins us for the hour. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate you uh, being on. Very interesting uh, concepts here. I wonder if we could start where you do in the book. Um, 1980s, there is a growing realization, at least among hardcore environmentalists, that there's a dolphin problem with the uh, tuna industry. And a young man uh, asked for a video camera. What do you tell that, that story? Yeah, sure. So the young man's name was Sam LaBuddy, and he was... Um, a visitor to the Earth Island Institute in San Francisco, hoping to actually work on rainforest destruction, which was another hot topic. And when he learned about the tuna dolphin issue, he said, you know what, I should go and try to collect evidence about this, because one of the important things for any transgression, right, is sort of um, proof of proof of a crime or a wrongdoing and a clear sort of understanding of, of responsibility. And people had sort of been talking about the tuna dolphin issue, but there were no visuals. And so the public wasn't so convinced, I guess. And I really remember this moment because I had a book called 50 Simple Things Kids Can Do to Save the Earth. I was nine years old. I wrote to Earth Island, and I wound up getting, as a result of the Sam LaBuddy adventure into Mexico, and he wound up getting film, and he wound up getting visuals, a black-and-white photograph in the mail of a dolphin being hoisted and, and slaughtered on board a tuna vessel. And this was uh, a major shaming campaign toward the major tuna companies at the time, and the media ran on television, and lots of children and their parents were, were outraged across the United States. And I contrast this uh, shaming campaign, which was very effective in getting attention and very effective in, in educating people about the issue, with the sort of... Um, what I would call the use of, of guilt to assuage. I mean, I felt guilty about the problem. And the, the use of certifications and consumer tools to assuage that guilt um, afterwards. So this is the, the sort of archetypal contrast I opened the book with in terms of trying to understand the difference between guilt and shame and how, um, and how we've tried to make ourselves feel better about both of those things. And uh, th- this was very effective. I, you know, I, I remember this time as well. And you quote Anthony Riley the former CEO of Heinz, which owned Starkist at the time, um, he mentions that uh, this has been very effective. C- kind of, you know, a little little bit, uh, you could read between the lines, a little bit bitter about it, but but he, he acknowledges that this has been very effective. Kids love Flipper, and the LaBuddy film comes out, and, and Flipper's being caught in the net, uh, and, and so it, it was very effective. Then you go on to say that uh, we were, I guess, we were diverted, right? We... We, yes. we stopped going after the producers. We started concentrating on ourselves. So we got away from shame and effectiveness there, and we, we went to guilt. Yeah, there's this, this pivot point exactly in that campaign where it was, I, I think, very clear targets. And you can understand why the tuna companies were a bit resentful because, and this is the interesting thing about shame, they weren't acting outside of the law. They were acting totally within the law the way the bankers would say they were doing right before the financial crisis. And yet, the American public, in both cases, felt that, yeah, what you might have been doing wasn't, wasn't illegal, but it was still wrong. And so the tuna companies were forced uh, 
to at least acknowledge their behavior and acknowledge attempts to change it, um, which, in fact, it, for some species, their behavior did change and improve, and, and improve the stocks. But this pivot point that I'm talking about was that I, as a consumer, just thought, okay, uh, the Dolphin Safe logo has come out, and I can just keep buying now tuna that's dolphin safe and totally forget about the problem, ignoring the fact that there were huge amounts of dolphin unsafe tuna still for sale, and that the primary way of engagement with the issue should not have been through individual consumption, but through political change and action. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, I guess this could apply as well to other things we do to assuage our, our guilt, right? But it, but it's individual, and therefore you say it's, it doesn't scale. You're looking for some tool that can scale. For example, things that a lot of us do, we, we buy organic food, right? We, uh, we, we look for fair trade. I suppose you would say these are good things, but uh, to be truly effective, we have to find a, a tool that's, that's, that can scale. Well, I mean, it, it's, for me, it's more of a systematic, so I look at these across the board. So fair trade, organic, uh, cruelty-free products, eco-labeled fish, all of it. And I ask, as a, a broad scale, what kind of effect has it had? And it's, the evidence is not great. And I'm, I wouldn't argue that these things are not important or that we shouldn't do them, but I would just argue that individual consumption is not the ideal unit of scale. Uh, to be working, especially for large-scale collective problems in which it doesn't really matter what I do if everyone else continues uh, the, the old style of behavior. And so this is one of the points I make in the book. And in a way, guilt has been um, a, a better friend of the market, and the market can come in and try to assuage that guilt uh, through new products and, and guilt-free um, vacations or what you know whatever whatever you're interested in and I think that has just been a distraction for what might have been a minority that would have been more politically motivated or organized so I wonder if you could delineate for us the, the difference between guilt and shame sure so I would argue um, and the way I define it for the book because there are lots of books on this topic but I'm interested in, in both as tools so and forms of punishment so Guilt is a form of self-punishment. The conversation that you're having is between you and your conscience, your sort of gut feeling about things. And shame is a feeling of not only that element, but a broader audience and a bigger group. So shame has this social element to it that guilt lacks. Hmm. And uh, so uh, uh, for shame uh, involves the collective then. Shame has to have more than one person. Exactly. It's hard to... To be shamed, ostracized, shunned on your own, right? This is a social phenomenon. And it involves social exposure. So what's interesting is that shame can be used against institutions, groups, systems in a way that guilt cannot. Guilt is, a, is its metric is the individual. Hmm. Now, I understand that you, you changed from the natural sciences to social sciences because you, you started to become interested in first guilt, I think, and then shame. Um, I was never fully a natural scientist. I, I, I was an economics major in undergrad, and I was always interested in um, household decision-making, individual macro, microeconomics, sorry. And that was what led me to get really interested in these campaigns and then along the way realize, oh, you know, this is not having the broader ecological impact that we actually wanted um, to get from these uh, conservation initiatives. And that was true not just of the environment, but also of fair labor laws, of uh, animal cruelty, uh, lots of other issues as well. Mm. Uh, so shame is an effective tool, and I think you are, read that you are interested, as we mentioned before, in large-scale cooperation dilemmas. And many of these are environmental. What uh, Climate change would be one. Yes. I'm interested in any... So uh, there are two types of, well... Cooperations that I'm dilemmas I'm interested in. One is a system like public radio, so public goods, where um, you can contribute or not to the good, and regardless of whether or not you contribute, you will receive the benefits. So you know, if I don't uh, contribute to NPR, I can still listen to it, right? Climate change is a little different from that scenario. It's a threshold public goods game, which means we have to have a certain amount of cooperation 
uh, and you can set that threshold wherever you want, maybe 80% cooperation, to, to even prevent anything like uh, dangerous climate change from occurring. So those are two different types of cooperation problems I'm interested in, and they have different sort of characteristics and, and ways in which they're solved or not solved. Um, and that's, that's my interest. So it's not, I focus on the environment, overfishing and climate change, but lots of things like uh, taxes, tax havens, uh, immunizations, public radio, they all have these same cooperative characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've touched a nerve there. We've got the fun drive coming up in about a month. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what we're going for when we incessantly get on and give the number in the fun drive, that's that's guilt, isn't it? If, if we were to name names of people yes. who have not given, that'd be public shaming. Yeah, you know who did that was Ira Glass during yeah, yeah, This yeah. American Life. He, yes, he did. He went on the shaming campaign, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very funny. He, I use him as an example in the book because I think he understood some of the basic principles of using shame. But I have noticed they have abandoned that strategy. So um, it, it may not be the best tactic for getting repeat giving year after year. Mm-hmm. There, there can be a backlash, can't there? People don't like to be publicly shamed. They don't like it. Um, I mean, for good reasons. None of us want to be in that position, right? Uh, so often the threat of shame actually works better than, than shame itself. And of course, the threat of shame isn't a viable threat unless you've seen some people being made the example. Um, and that is why each of us has become increasingly uncomfortable with shame, and for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. But again, I think some of us, even though we are uncomfortable with maybe that individual level of shaming, certainly with things like tarring and feathering or the stocks or the pillory, you know, the sort of um, Victorian-style uh, shaming, I think that today, though, there's still a place for shaming, especially at the group level. So shaming BP for the Gulf oil spill, um, shaming certain banks for being involved in financing mountaintop coal removal. This is a form of shaming that we don't want to throw out with those sort of more uh, testy or checkered individual forms of shaming. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, because I felt like in some senses we were throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we would just say, shaming is bad. Mm-hmm. So, especially in individualistic societies such as ours, it, as you say, it's, it's, shame has gotten a bad rap, right? So we, th- we immediately think of the scarlet letter and, and so forth. Yeah. And, I mean, in, there are also really interesting things linguistically. In more individualistic cultures, which tend to be in the West, there, is, there are words for guilt. Guilt comes up more frequently in emotional discussions. Uh, shame is much lower on our on our sort of list of emotional experience. And in the East, in contrast, in certain cultures, there's not even a word for guilt. And they're much more collective societies. And for that reason, shame seems to resonate higher in their emotional frequency. But I do believe, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest, that shame is a universal emotion felt by every human everywhere and how it manifests whether or not you want to call it shame or or guilt because if you're an individualistic society you want to believe it's really a conversation between you and your conscience um it's still a a very strong form of social control so uh, what about this and and i thought uh, robert sapolsky put it very well in his his blurb for your book in the age of anthony weiner and miley cyrus shame seems an antiquated concept in some ways it seems that shame is passe you can for example uh, what was his name uh, governor sanborn from uh, south carolina um you can you can go on the the famous uh, non-walk uh, the hike on the Appalachian Trail, and it f- be found out that you're actually with your mistress in Argentina, mm-hmm. and and yet uh, just a couple of years later you're elected to Congress. Well, you know, uh, you can look at Clinton's record, for instance, with the Lewinsky scandal. I mean, he uh, lost uh, sort of trust in terms of the public with regards to his personal life, but people did not lose trust in his ability to run the country politically. So, in some cases, uh, it depends. You know, we're we're still somewhat reasonable in, in arguing that transgressions in certain domains don't necessarily mean transgressions in others. Um, at the same time, there is this sort of feeling, right, of, of shamelessness. I mean, it's almost something we embrace, right, especially in our culture, of breaking social norms, of, of living beyond the rules. And it's, it's almost admirable. But there are always, I mean, I, I just can't really endorse the idea that shamelessness is rampant, given that 
um, you know, I live in New York City where it's a constant uh, tension between the social rules and the individual, and people are following the rules. They're wearing clothes. They're picking up after their dog. Now, not everyone, right? But to a large degree, the, the system works because people enforce and, and understand the rules. Now, now, they're shaming on a smaller scale, and I think we all probably experience this. Um, you know, someone or a group of people sort of looks askance at you if you perform a certain behavior. Um, and then there's, and you scale it up. Uh, and it can be effective. They, you've cited an example from uh, California where um, the, the threat is there, the, the rule is in place that if you don't pay your taxes past a certain date, you get put in the newspaper. Put online. Or put online, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So you have six months in which to pay your delinquent taxes um, or you're put online. And what's interesting about this policy, which is a government policy, and therefore we've really tried to get shaming out of government policies in general. People are very uncomfortable with the idea that you'd be forced to carry a sign or you know, wear a badge expressing that you did X, Y, or Z wrong. It's not to say it doesn't exist, but there are high levels of discomfort, especially on the coast. So in California, at the state level, again, at the, at the federal level, there are formal routes of punishment for not paying your taxes. The IRS will come, you know, they might stick you in jail. At the state level, those options for punishment are off the table. And so 20 states, at least now, have introduced uh, online shaming policies. And it's the threat of shame. We will put your name on uh, online if you don't pay your taxes within six months. And these are they're often... Um, high cutoff. So in the state of California, you have to owe more than, originally I think it was 250000 and now it might be $100,000 in back taxes. So what I like about this policy is that it protects the most vulnerable, the poorest, who might not have been able to pay their taxes for very good reasons. Also, even sometimes the, the ultra-rich may have those reasons, and they can write to the state and request an exemption. But in a lot of other cases, this threat of shame has actually led to huge amounts of recovery and back taxes. And again, this is a social dilemma. We all benefit from the roads that we're driving on, the schools that our children go to. And, you know, we all should be, and most people do, over 90% of people pay their taxes. And so this has been an area in which shaming has been a very effective tool and very, very cost effective. It only costs like $130,000 a year to run the program, and they're getting over $300 million in, in back taxes back as a result of this policy. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jennifer Jacquet. Her new book, very interesting book, Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. Uh, Jennifer Jacquet is assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at New York University. And uh, she says in the book that uh, she, she's looking for a uh, way to solve large-scale cooperation dilemmas. Many of these are environmental climate change, maybe it's the, you know, the gold standard example, uh, that individual guilt has been the way we've been responding to these things, and that uh, targeted public shaming, say corporations, governments, uh, can be uh, an effective way to, uh, to scale up the effectiveness of efforts on environmental issues. We'd love to get your perspective on this. Perhaps you have an example you could uh, cite, an, an effective shaming campaign you've been involved with, or maybe something that didn't work, or maybe you've been on the receiving end. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis, 52 Federal Avenue in historic downtown Logan. Open seven days a week, featuring triple certified coffee, a seasonal organic ethnic deli, and espresso bar with culinary gifts. Ordering and location information is at cafeibis.com. On the next Humankind. I see him a moral core or moral compass developing over many years, I don't think it's something that naturally emerges. I think it's something that adults have to be very intentional about cultivating. How to nurture the moral development of children. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Today's broadcast of Access Utah originally aired in February of this year. You can still comment on today's program at upraxess at gmail.com 
or on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour today is Jennifer Jacquette, author of Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. As Robert Sapolsky says, in the age of Anthony Weiner and Miley Cyrus, shame seems an antiquated concept, but Jacquette says we can, in a targeted way, bring this back. And it may be one solution to large-scale cooperation dilemmas, such as climate change, other environmental issues. So we're talking about this issue on the program today. You are welcome to join the conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Jennifer Jaffquette, I'd... Uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell me the story, and this is one of this is chapter ten. This is uh, if you made this up, you'd be laughed out of a novel, for example. But this is true. Um, the mayor of Bogota, Antanas Mokus, who among other things hired professional mimes to draw attention to jaywalking, uh, people not wearing seat belts, excessive honking, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and this became effective. Yeah, so Mokus is a great example of someone who was able to really capitalize on the tool of shame. And I have an earlier chapter about the seven habits of highly effective shaming, but I use Mokus because just because shaming is effective doesn't mean it's the ideal tool. It doesn't mean that the audience has embraced it. And Mokus managed to not only make shaming effective, but to make it loved as part of the community. And he did this in part due to embracing the arts. So he originally hired, uh, I think, 40 mimes to follow people. One of the big problems in Bogota at the time, among um, there were many, but were traffic accidents and uh, irresponsible driving behavior and pedestrian behavior. So he hired these mimes, and they eventually hired 400 more to encourage better pedestrian and driving behavior around the city. And again, it, it did use personal shaming, but in a very artistic playful way. He also handed out cards to citizens where they could, uh, they were red on one side, white on the other, like the cards they would use during football, soccer matches. And he allowed the crowd to be part of expressing approval or disapproval for certain driving behaviors and was able to show that there was actually a decrease in bad behavior over time as a result of these. So not only was it effective, but people really have seen now the mimes, and, and Mocha's had lots of other campaigns like this, but the mimes is really being signature of his time in office. Another one I found interesting, he uh, sponsored at least once a night for women. He requested cities men stay home in the evening, and he went around neighborhoods wearing a clock around his neck. Yes, and he also tried to get people to take shorter showers during a water crisis uh, by uh, doing a public service announcement where he himself was naked in the shower, so again, like sort of expressing this almost shamelessness. He, he used shame and shamelessness together to really try to change behavior. But um, I think that what's, what's great about him is that in 2012, for instance, he was invited to the, the Berlin Biennale for, for his use of the arts. And he just really understood that shame is related to attention. If you can't get the audience's attention, you're probably not going to be able to get them to care. And in getting their attention, he realized how important sort of street theater was to that mission. And as you mentioned, he, he, he used both sides of the coin, right? Shame and shamelessness. Yes. He, was, he, he was, got his job <laughs> yeah. because he, um, well, he, he was able to run for mayor because he had formerly been president of the university. And in trying to get the crowd's attention when they were being rowdy at an assembly, he actually mooned the audience. And... <laughs> This actually led for him to losing his job at the university. But because he'd gotten all this press, he was able to run, actually, the, the cheapest mayoral campaign in, in Bogota's history and succeed in becoming mayor of the city. So he, again, really understood both sides of the coin. So, uh, are there other examples you could cite? I'm interested in hearing effective uses. Uh, of course, early in the program, we yeah. the, pro, the, the example we all know, the, the um, tuna and dolphins. Yes. Or, I mean, empirically and experimentally, there are so many great cases. It has worked in voting behavior. It's worked in reducing smoking. And again, because these things are cooperative dilemmas, they have costs for all of society if you either partake or don't partake. Um, there's been lots of talks in using shaming and immunizations. But the one thing I, I want to say is that the book is not an assault on guilt as a phenomenon. It's a very great 
tool. In fact, it's our best tool at the individual level because you police yourself. Society doesn't have to do it. It's the cheapest form of social control. But the problem in my mind is that guilt doesn't work at scale. It's very hard to guilt BP into doing something or guilt uh, capitalism into changing certain aspects of it, of its of the system. So this is where I think social exposure really can be used to affect. Again, you can, uh, Greenpeace uh, has many, many shaming campaigns, but one of the ones that I like because I work on overfishing is one called Carting Away the Oceans, where they look at large supermarkets selling unsustainable seafood, and they go after um, ones in which especially the consumer base is really concerned. So Trader Joe's, they had a big campaign in 2009, and they can show clear evidence that Trader Joe's changed its behavior, changed its patterns of consumption. And that just makes such a bigger difference than if you or I change our seafood patterns of consumption. Mm. I want to back up just a little bit. You mentioned uh, immunizations. and uh, I wonder if there's, there's an example you can, you can cite there. A lot of us have been thinking, of course, about this with the measles outbreak in, in California. Yes, of course. Well, I mean, the immunization is such a great, there's a sort of natural experiment that's going on, right? Because we can look at states that have the highest levels of um, non-immunizers. And those happen to be states in which exemptions are very, very easy to come by, California being one of them. Then you can look at a state like Mississippi that doesn't have this issue at all. It has 100% compliance because they've made it illegal, basically, to exempt yourself. Very, very difficult to get out of immunizing your children. So we have this sort of spectrum of easy to hard in terms of exempting yourself from immunization. And then in states where it's very easy, higher rates, and those those numbers of children not being immunized put us all at risk. And yet, if we were to, let's say, shame those children, I think most of us would feel that was fairly unfair in the sense that the children are victims of their parents' decisions and shouldn't necessarily bear the burden of, you know, being ostracized or whatever might happen. So I like, um, you know, this tactical use of shaming, going after the people and institutions, perpetuating the myths about immunization, that it's linked to autism, and, um, and the senators who are also, there are congressmen, perpetuating some of these myths. That seems to me more tactical and more important than going after the individuals who seem to be clearly, given this variability we have across state, um, manifesting uh, behavior that is more or less endorsed by the system in which they live. So again, going after the system uh, rather than the individuals seems to me a better way to go. Yeah, and that's an important point, isn't it? Uh, Especially in the digital era. Right there, you know, if you shaming as a concept is uncomfortably close uh, as it applies to an individual to bullying. Oh, of course. I mean, so one thing. I mean, that's again, it might be effective. Uh, bullying might be very effective. Blackmailing might be very effective, but it might. That doesn't mean it's acceptable. It doesn't mean each of us like to see that happen, and that's why um, often used by the weak against the strong makes shaming a more acceptable tool. Uh, even if using it by, by the strong against the weak is an effective one. I make this, this point in the book. And again, another reason why I think the book is important right now is that because of social media, because of the, the scope and speed and accessibility that we all have to exposing people to large audiences, and of course we could each ourselves become its victim, it's really important that we each understand the power and liabilities of this tool and also understand how we're spending our attention because our attention is finite, and are we really focusing on the best issues? I um, brought up uh, last week the issue of Brian Williams, of course, being very common in the media. I loved John Stewart sort of turning our attention, not from Brian Williams, but to the media at large and saying, I wish the media had, had this level of scrutiny on, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the lies that were perpetuated about weapons of mass destruction. And to me, this was very artful use of shaming and much better way of spending our attention than focusing on this one. Not that that's not important, but that we, we all just need to really be conscious of the way that we're, we're spending our energy. And I do think that the changes at scale is, is a better way to go. But um, of course, not everyone might feel that way, but I think it's all worth thinking about. 
I wonder if we could uh, get into maybe, I don't know, the psychology of this, the, the mechanism of this. We know that shaming works on organizations, you know, the dolphins, etc. Another example I think that you've cited, very effective Amnesty International, went after the U.S. for executing juveniles, and, that, and the U.S. changed their policy. Yeah. Uh, but there are limits, right? I mean, Amnesty International and others, the European countries, um, anytime there's a high-profile uh, execution in the U.S., uh, you know, of, of adults, um, goes after the U.S., tries to effect change. So far, that hasn't happened. Yeah, one of the reasons why it was so powerful with juvenile offenders is because they pointed out the other seven countries in the world um, who still allowed it. And that was not company the U.S. wanted to keep. Um, in the case of capital punishment, I mean, lots of these battles are are long and difficult. And of course, we we never tool, shame is just a tool, and it's going to be as bad or good as the people using it and the reasons it's used for. But I wouldn't say that just because it didn't work this year or next year that it's ineffective. A lot of these um, campaigns good and bad, require constant vigilantism. And so, you know, like the Greenpeace campaign against supermarkets has been going on for, I think, over six years now. And you have to have this constant pressure. And that's, that's part of the cumbersome nature of shaming. And it's why it's often a stopgap on the way to larger regulation, because you don't want to have to keep policing reputation year after year after year. And then, again, there may be some problems, that that's the only way you want to go about it. But, you know, often what these people, um, Amnesty International or these organizations have in mind is eventually policy changes. Well, if you look historically, um, the anti-slavery movement, which took a long, long time, uh, you know, shaming was, was part of that. Yeah, I mean, and what you can certainly say is that individual consumption was not part of that. It was not acceptable that you bought products that were, let's say, grains that were not farmed with slave labor. This was not the approach. Um, or that, you know, if you yourself didn't own slaves, you could sit back and sort of feel uh, morally competent. It was not about change at the individual level, as far as I can tell. And... I don't think there were any certifications at the time. And this whole phenomenon, the rise of, you know, fair trade, it just really, in a way, is a totally new way of looking at social dilemmas, and I just don't think that it's going to get us where, where we want to go. We'll take another break. We'll come back and I want to get into maybe a specific issue regarding climate change. And how do you use shaming if, say, half the um, country doesn't even agree there's a problem. And we'll get into some of the intricacies there. I also want to talk about Utah's ag-gag bill, where it seems to be a sort of a pushback against the possibility of being shamed. It's a law that's, that's also passed in other uh, states where it, it's illegal to uh, film uh, farm operations while you're on the, the, that farm property. More following the break. The official statistic is that in the past couple of years, homelessness in Los Angeles is up 12%. But the reality is that the number of people living out in the open has more than doubled. We are seeing them in places that they didn't used to have encampments. We're seeing them under underpasses, sides of freeways, like what we're at today. I'm Kai Rizdal. Casualties of the changing economy next time on Marketplace from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. When you support UPR as a sponsoring business, it makes a statement that this programming is important to you. UPR listeners appreciate our underwriters and often make a point of supporting them. For information on underwriting, please call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. That's 435-797-3215. Thank you. Today's broadcast of Access Utah originally aired in February of this year. You can still comment on today's program at upraxcess at gmail.com or on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about shame. And my guest, Jennifer Jacquette, who's written the book, Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. She says it is an old tool. It can seem antiquated, but in a targeted way, it can be effective. And we've cited instances where shaming has been effective. Uh, Jennifer Jacquette is interested especially in environmental issues and uh, large-scale cooperation dilemmas, as she calls them. Climate change is one of those. We're going to be talking about that specifically as we uh, get into this last segment here. You can reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We have about uh, 10 minutes left. So let's uh, begin this uh, segment with uh, a caller, Paul in Logan. Uh, Paul, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, hi, enjoying the conversation this morning quite a bit. Um, I've been a big supporter of this kind of idea in terms of environmental causes my whole life, but I, recently I feel on the receiving end in terms of the immunization issue, and I don't want to sidetrack the conversation about immunization, but generally I wonder if the difference is uh, shaming at a societal level or a corporate level or uh, at a political level seems okay to me, but when it comes down to personal beliefs or personal philosophy or even something like religion, uh, it's, it's hardened my case and made me feel uh, much more defensive and less likely to change. And I'll take the answer off the air. Okay, thanks, Paul. Very interesting. Uh, Jennifer Jacquette, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I think there's, uh, there's really good reasons to feel that way, except when individual decisions wind up having much broader social effects. So I was reading an article where a parent was kind of upset that there was so much hype around their, in their school around um, asking parents to not, and, and no one should pack peanuts in the lunch because of peanut allergies, but then almost that, that the discussion about immunizations was off the table. So I think in the case of peanut allergies and immunizations, when your personal decisions then wind up having a, a ripple effect um, through broader social society and also putting some people, i.e. children, that we see as particularly vulnerable at risk, this is when it becomes a discussion for all of us, in the very same way that secondhand smoke became a discussion for all of us. It, smoking used to be sort of seen as this individual decision, but once the science came, came about showing all the secondhand effects, you know, we said maybe we won't allow this individual decision to occur in certain places like restaurants or schools or, or places like that. So again, because it has this cooperative nature, it changes the way that we view personal choice. It's interesting. This is probably a natural reaction that, that Paul cited in, in his own life. Um, if, if it becomes directed at you, maybe maybe your attitude toward the concept would harden a bit. Oh, sure. I mean, mm -hmm. we've, we've all been victims of shame at one point. That's why it's such a salient concept. Um, and, uh, you know, it is a very difficult thing to overcome, and there are all sorts of ways to overcome it, and some of them good and bad. But uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Uh, just because it feels bad. And it doesn't also mean that we should go for it just because it works. But I think it's, it's it, because of its power, it's just this really useful thing to explore. And I, I can't help but chime in because I heard the commercial for the program about 80% of water in agriculture, um, going to agriculture in, in California and yet representing only 1% of the economy. And, you know, in California they have these some shaming campaigns. They're not even really campaigns, but people will – Neighbors will shame other neighbors who water their lawn, for instance, during a water shortage. And, you know, people talk about how it can work or not work, but the, but the main point is that actually most of the water is going to agriculture. So the idea that we would be shaming one another and directing at individuals and, and creating awkward social situations is silly, given the way that water is distributed in the state, in the state. and it would much better instead be directed at the system that allows water to be... Uh, used so wastefully in many cases by agriculture. So I, I think you've said that uh, more effective aimed at organizations than at individuals. Well, You're simply because it the behavior is so much more impactful. Yeah, but it's not always true. Like in California, with the with the case of tax delinquents, individuals actually owe more in back taxes than corporations. Mm. Now, to be truly effective, uh, these large-scale cooperation dilemmas, and I want to want to talk specifically about climate change. Uh, and I've talked to, well, you know, we have conversations here on Access Utah about climate change, and I, I do sense frustration on the part of those who believe there's an urgent problem and we need urgent action, that they just can't get their neighbor to believe it 
And and so, for example, you know, if you're shaming your neighbor about climate change or, or environmental issues and your neighbor doesn't even believe there's a problem, uh, it's probably going to fall on deaf ears, right? Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, it, again, the, the individual as being the ideal unit of change is probably not worthwhile in the case of climate change. Much better, let's say, to go after, as the League of Conservation Voters does, um, the politicians who are... Um, blocking climate change legislation in the Senate or or um, in the House, and so I I again just try to avoid. In fact, there's a new petition out to now not allow the term climate skeptic to be used on mainstream media. Uh, that we should instead um, call them climate denialists. Uh, it's really interesting tactics. Again, I would say aiming at higher higher levels and scales than changing individual minds. Not to say that it won't have a, a top-down or ripple uh, effect, but just to say that I don't think it's worth necessarily getting into these personal conflicts uh, about climate change. Well, that, that, and that's interesting. A label like that, <laughs> there's an element of shaming, isn't there? At, at least the department, oh, yeah. you know. You, oh, I think so. Ratchet I mean, up the label. sort of implies mm-hmm. it has a more positive connotation. Yeah. I wonder if you'd uh, comment a bit on on our Utah's ag gag bill. Uh, several states have this, and this seems to be a pushback. Uh, maybe uh, because agricultural uh, operators have seen effective shaming campaigns, and so now in Utah it's illegal uh, for someone to videotape agricultural operations if you're on uh, private property. Yes. It's really concerning, actually. I think there are only two states, and Iowa is the other one um, in the U.S. that have actually passed these ag-gag laws. Um, I would wonder if that law really, really did represent, again, the views of the majority. Most people in America in surveys have expressed uh, very hostile views toward animal cruelty. But corporations have been very strong, and, and large-scale agriculture businesses, at lobbying governments, state and federal, to prevent... Um, filming and whistleblowing in factory farm operations. And in, that's in part because the footage that's been collected there has just been so effective at showing that there is behavior going on that most people, the vast majority of people, do not endorse. And showing that this, again, is, uh, is sort of the system at large, and it's not just about sort of individual behaviors. And so... Corporations have been very effective at fighting that so that they don't have to uh, basically lose profit because, in a sense, making uh, animals' lives better costs costs money. I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, the the digital world, Internet, and I don't know if it's a digital place. I don't know if it's possible to police or or to, to norm this out. But it seems like sometimes there's a vigilantism of shame. You know, it's just... just Certainly. I mean, it was the Wild West for a while, and we're seeing that, really. We're seeing the privatization of the online world and all sorts of new rules where people said, we want the online environment to be just almost anarchist and no rules, and it turns out that people don't want to spend much time on sites where, let's say, comments aren't moderated because they very quickly turn ugly, cruel inappropriate. And now in some of the biggest sites, Huffington Post, New York Times, they actually require you to not be anonymous or to have a a sort of Facebook uh, check on the commentary. There are all sorts of of rules being put in place online. Now, is it at all like the real world? No, it's still much freer than that. But I don't know that we'll be able to say that's true in, in 10 more years. And, of course, we all now realize, oh, lots of the behavior that we've been doing due to our IP addresses or our phones is actually not anonymous if the state or, or even hackers want to go after you retrospectively. So I think this idea that you could have this fully anonymous existence online is sort of over at the moment anyway. Just have about a minute left, and I wonder, uh, looking to the future, what's... What's your hope? This the shame can be used as a increasingly as a targeted tool, and can be effective. Well, I, I guess my hope is that because we are all complicit in some way, either as the audience, as potential victims, as uh, campaign managers, just as your average citizen with shame, that we would all become more acquainted with the power and complexities and liabilities 
of this tool. And it's not just like any tool. It's not entirely bad. It's not entirely good. And that's why, I mean, it's not an easy, clear message, but I do think it's really worth each of us um, understanding and becoming more familiar with. Jennifer Jacquet is um, assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at New York University, and her new book, interesting book, is Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. And hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Yes, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Now for some Utah news. In 2012, Congress set up the Protect Our Kids Act to help reduce the number of childhood deaths related to abuse and neglect. UPR's Melissa Allison says one of the key provisions of that act was to establish a commission to gather testimonies from states like Utah, where annual rates of abuse are lower than the national average. Scott Sorensen is the chair of the advisory board for the Iron County Children's Justice Center, which is one of 20 state-funded centers set up to support victims of abuse and crimes against children. Usually, the only opportunity we have to become involved is, sadly, after the fact. So if we could find a way to deal with individuals that might have any challenges about uh, anger or a variety of things, if left unchecked, could lead to abuse. If we could find a way to educate our general population more and more, to where we could have people really help themselves to check some of those challenges and difficulties or even thinking patterns, they'd be doing a much better job rather than coming in after the fact. Unfortunately, with sexual abuse, there's never a clear boundary. You're supposed to love your father, your uncle, your grandfather, your aunt. It's so unclear. That was Kristen Perry, who had detectives arrive on her doorstep on March 7, 2011, after arresting her then-husband at the Utah State Capitol. He worked as a budget analyst and had sexually abused two of their five children. It was so hard. I actually had a strong visual as the detective told me how severe the abuse was. I felt like everything that I had ever hoped or anything thought of my future was on a whiteboard and someone was just wiping it clean. I had no idea what I was going to do in the next five minutes, ten minutes, how to live life. Perry's daughter had just learned about child abuse and neglect from Prevent Child Abuse Utah, an organization that visits schools in Utah to educate children on how to identify abuse. Carrie Jensen is the associate director of PCAU. We're providing them some education and some tools of saying, if this is happening, this is how you can get help. And kids participate. They ask questions. We do role play things with them where we can act out who could you go tell in a situation like this. Jensen says there's a lot of misinformation about who abusers are. There are a lot of myths about child abuse and who an abuser is and what they look like. And it really could be anyone. So there's not a clear definition. The National Commission to Eliminate Child Abuse and Neglect Fatalities is traveling the country to hear testimonies from states with both high and low rates of fatalities. Chairman David Sanders and other members of the commission were appointed by President Obama, who directed them to gather information from across the nation to better understand the issue and how to eradicate the tragic loss of children. Sanders says states with low child abuse and neglect fatality numbers don't leave the burden of creating awareness on the shoulders of government agencies. When people think of who's responsible for addressing abuse and neglect, people think of the Child Protection Agency. But in the communities that we've seen that have taken this issue on, they've looked beyond the Child Protection Agency to hospitals, law enforcement, schools, child care, and made this a community responsibility. Commission member David Rubin is a pediatrician. The extent to which different programs that serve children and families kind of get out of their silos and communicate better with each other and integrate their approaches to make it easy for families to access their services tends to result in better outcomes that ensures that no kid is going to slip through the cracks. Perry says her family's recovery is in large part due to the support her community, PCAU, and the local authorities provided. So PCAU and other programs like it define those boundaries again for children to feel safe within those boundaries and say, no, I am okay to say no here. She says her best advice to anyone is to talk about it, have the difficult conversations so that shame can be removed from the victims and healing can begin. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Melissa Allison. 
and about 18 miles north of St. George, plans for a housing development have changed in the Dameron Valley. UPR reporter Amy Kobabe brings us the story of how a developer plans to buy land for a housing development and donate a portion to the Archaeological Conservancy for Preservation. When developer Brooks Pace saw the site of an ancient Puebloan pit house in the midst of a future housing development, he decided to donate the site to the Archaeological Conservancy rather than see it destroyed. Greg Woodall, a consulting archaeologist who helped in the research of the house, said that Pace's choice to preserve the site is distinctive in his particular field. The more he thought about it, the more he just didn't want to see that site built upon. But usually when archaeologists deal with the site, then the bulldozers come in and it's just gone. Pace will be buying the land from the state, then donating the pit site to the Conservancy. And an area will be set up for visitors to learn more about its ancient inhabitants. Digital technology, we can in essence have the the virtual uh, house in digital format uh, and also protected in the ground. The idea is to preserve it for for all future generations to enjoy, and that location itself will just be basically a little neighborhood park sort of thing. Jazz Evans, Southwest Regional Field Representative with the Conservancy, said the 2,000-year-old house is important for the area. The Cameron Valley site is really unique in its own way. It represents a, you know, a unique sort of site structure in that they decided to dig into the ground rather than build up. So it's really, really important that way. The pit will be backfilled to protect and preserve it for possible excavations in the future. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Amy Kobabe. And thank you for listening to your local news and Access Utah Today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Robert Schumann wrote this piece with four solo horns and orchestra. It's not played very often because you need not one, but four super talented horn players to pull it off. Well, we've got them from an all-star concert at the Aspen Music Festival on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Congratulations to Rachel Wheeler, USU graduate and music instructor at Roosevelt Junior High, for receiving the Sorensen Legacy Award for Excellence in Art Education. The award recognizes the educators who embrace the arts at Utah's public schools. UPR congratulates Rachel Wheeler for her honor of the Sorensen Legacy Award for Excellence in Art Education. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden with your host, Brian Earl, coming up next, followed by performance today at 11 o'clock this morning. The time now is 10 o'clock.